Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. In this season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are Clay and Mackenzie Peed. We are glad to have the two of you with us today. And Mackenzie, will you start us off by telling us a little bit about how you and Clay know one another? Yes. So Clay and I are both physical therapists and we met one another actually on Clay's interview to Augusta University for physical therapy school. I'm a year ahead of Clay in PT school and Clay came for an interview and I was in the snack room and we briefly met each other there. And then once he was accepted and became a physical therapy student, we ran into each other on campus and had lunch together outside with people. And we also ran into each other here at First Pres. And we would sit together um, for church and we became friends. And then he finally did ask me on a date. And um, finally, <laughs> finally, um, <laughs> yes, I, I joke that I, I did have a, a baby crush on him the first time that we we met each other, but he doesn't believe like me. Like in the snack room when you were in the snack room and no, you met him? No, I wouldn't say that in the snack room I had okay. a crush on him. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but it was the more I got to know him. And, you know, I remember we had conversations like on the, the steps at the PT school. There's like some steps leading down. And like I was sitting there and eating lunch and he would come and sit with me. And I just remember having conversations actually about like the Bible. And so that I think spurred an interest in that, you know, this guy knows who God is. And when I would see him at, at church and at different MCO events, I decided I liked him. So he asked me on a date and then we dated for about a year and a half about, and then we got engaged and we're married um, August 7th, 2021. Did y'all get married here? We did. Yes. Yeah, so we got married at First Pres, and Mike here married us. It was really sweet. Very cool. We loved it. Clay, when did you have a baby crush? Um, so... I started school in May 2018, and I don't remember this first moment, but I remember at our Halloween party that October, um, talking to one of my classmates and um, you know, talking about the what's the probability that I could um, get Mackenzie to go on a date with me. <laughs> I love the science. Did you have actual numbers? Yeah, right. How do you figure that <laughs> probability out we didn't know we didn't have the the brains for that but uh we're just living on a prayer that's <laughs> great um, yeah but then we um i didn't ask her out until january because um when we got back because when i was finally getting the courage one of my mentors advised me to to wait instead of busting in while she's studying for finals uh, uh, i was thoughtful yeah that was very thoughtful it was not my first thought but well, that's fun. Well, let's move on then to our first things first question and going out of the realm of love to the realm of food. And the question is, what is the first thing you would choose to eat for a special breakfast? And Clay, you can kick us off. If I had to choose, um, I would take some old fashioned French toast. Okay. What makes it old fashioned? Sorry to interrupt you. I don't know what specifically makes it old fashioned, but um, it's a nostalgic food for me. We were in Athens this past weekend, and we were at Mama's Boy, and they have this French toast with peaches on it. Mm-hmm. And but so you I didn't get t- it. I didn't get it. But time to go back. I know, but um, I would have it that way if okay. I could. With yeah. peaches. With peaches. That sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. And syrup. I don't think I would need it. I'm, I'm not a big syrup guy. Just a light drizzle. 
Powder sugar? Mm-hmm. We've got questions. Whipped cream. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm picturing this old-fashioned French toast, and it's pretty delectable. Mm-hmm. What about you, Mackenzie? I love breakfast potatoes. Mm. Potatoes are like my favorite food. I think they're so versatile. So I love having them for breakfast with like pep- sauteed peppers in there. And I really love bacon too. So mm. probably breakfast potatoes, bacon, and eggs. So y'all are the perfect combination, savory mm-hmm. and sweet. And I saw Clay smile at you in an endearing way when you said, they're so versatile. And I was just <laughs> laughing like, girl, you pick your food based off of its versatility. Practicality. I love that. I must say something about you. It's a great, great little food. You're right. Um, I think for me, I would choose a quiche with a vinegary salad. Mm. And a proper flaky croissant. Oh, gotta yes. say it yes. like you mean it. You would want a salad for breakfast, um, with, to cut the eggs. You know, like oh. to cut the richness a little bit. The vinegary mm. part is crucial. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah, I I understand. I also like versatile potatoes. So yeah. don't get me wrong. You sound like somebody on the Great British Baking Show. Oh, brother, or mm. something like oh that cuts. The mm-hmm. eggs. The acid, yeah, it's important. And then a nice uh, steamy latte would be good. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling like I might come over to your house for my special breakfast because when you <laughs> describe that, I'm down with all of that. Sounds I good, actually right? love a salad and I love a vinegary salad and I am wide open to eating salad for breakfast. So mm-hmm. mine was not is not that exciting. I just said coffee cake. And I do love coffee cake with tea. I've said this multiple times before that I'm not a coffee girl, but I am a tea girl and I have a homemade coffee cake that includes cream cheese. Mm. And I do love a nice rich piece of coffee cake. With some black tea. If we're going to Athens, big city bread. Mm, mm, mm. Yes, we ate there this weekend. Y'all hit all the good spots. Oh, we did. Well, food and drink obviously play an important role in our lives. Yes. Yes. It is necessary for survival. It's versatile. Mackenzie, mm-hmm. but it also gives us delight. Mm-hmm. And in our passage for today, we're going to learn about the necessity and the delight of living water. Water is mentioned multiple times in John's gospel. In fact, in the first three chapters that we've already talked about on the podcast, we've seen John baptizing with water. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about the necessity of new birth that comes through water and the spirit. And now here in our passage, Jesus is offering living water, the sort that once you drink it, it will quench your thirst forever. The sort that becomes a spring of water in you, welling up to eternal life. And so if you're saying, where do you get that kind of water? Good question. Uh, And that's the question we're going to look at today. It's one that was asked and answered in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. And if you're listening and you haven't read this passage yet, I highly encourage you to hit the pause button, read it, and then come back to join the conversation because you'll get so much more out of what we have to say if you do. Now, last week, we talked about Jesus's encounter with a man named Nicodemus from John chapter three. And Nicodemus was a man who had trouble seeing his need for salvation. He could not comprehend that he had come face to face with the only one who would provide what he did not even understand he needed. Now, just a few verses later, we come to another encounter that the author John intentionally places in close proximity to Nicodemus, an encounter opposite to Nicodemus in so many ways, but one that John uses as a contrast in order to further illuminate what he wants us to see about Jesus at this point in his gospel. And that's this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So if you're looking at these two accounts, you'll see and you'll start to realize the ways that they are opposite. 
Uh, to begin with, Nicodemus is a man. And the woman we're going to talk about in this account is obviously a woman. Nicodemus was Jewish, and this woman was a Samaritan. Uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and this woman encountered Jesus in the blazing noonday sun. Nicodemus was a learned religious leader, and this woman was uneducated. Nicodemus would have been considered highly moral, and the Samaritan woman was caught in and hurt by immorality. Nicodemus has a name in the passage, and the woman is never called by her name. And the big surprise that comes to the forefront of all of this, if you are a reader in John's day, is that the one who seems to be the least of the two is the one who ends up believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And that is exactly what John wants us to be surprised by. So as y'all were looking at this passage, what did you find that surprised or interested you? There, I feel like there's so many things in this passage that are really beautiful. Um, this is one of my favorite Bible stories. So I was really excited that um, we got to read this one and, and talk about it. So verse four is the verse that struck out to me initially because it says that he had to go through Samaria. And when I looked at a map, you know, like it was the straight shot mm-hmm. from, I guess, what Judea to Galilee, but that the Jews did not typically go through that way because they were not wanted to be associated with the Samaritans. So just the fact that he had to go through that area, meaning that he knew that he was going to have this encounter with this woman and he was going to go um, at all costs. So I think that that's just really sweet to think that Jesus wants to take the hardest way to come see us and enter into our brokenness. And I think also something that struck out to me too is that Jesus approached this woman alone, like his disciples weren't with him to town to buy food. And so he wanted to have this personal encounter with this woman and didn't want it to be around any other people. Um, And so that I think to me, that just means like God wants to meet with me. He wants to commune with me. And so I think that that was just another really sweet thing Mm -hmm. that really stood out to me. Yeah. When you think about God's intent, that it wasn't just accidental in the sense that you know, he was sitting by the well, he was thirsty, he needed to drink. And so you see it as a divinely appointed or a divine appointment. Mm-hmm. And he was so attuned to his father's will. You see in Acts 1.8, that's one of the things that Jesus has told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. So he is living out his father's will right there. That's the will that he communicates to us. Um, I definitely agree. It was the first thing that struck me was his willingness um, to take the route that you know, the other Jews would not. And just him coming down to earth, kind of even showing that of you know, maybe think of uh, Ephesians 2.14, um, that he also came in his flesh to break down walls of hostility. And um, we actually kind of uh, pre-gamed for this by watching this clip of The Chosen. If you haven't watched it, you should watch it. I cried. Okay. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful scene which was very powerful. And that was just something that um, they do put disclaimers that it's not every word by word, the gospel itself, but um, just makes you think, like you said before, every, everything that he's doing here is breaking down a wall of hostility and a barrier of man interacting with woman, um, of Jew with Samaritan. It makes me think, you know, do I go out of my way to break down the barriers that are in our community? Um, Do I break down socioeconomic and racial barriers for me and patient care? Do I do that willingly? And just the humility and patience 
um, in the conversation that Jesus had also just surprised me because I struggle with humility and with patience when I'm having to, to meet someone in a place where it might be difficult for me or I feel that you know, maybe they should already know this or maybe they should be aware and that's not Jesus. You know, Jesus emptied himself of everything and taking on the form of a servant. Um, so just really getting to see really him embodying everything that he said he would. So those things, they surprised me even though I've seen and known them before, but to see them put into practice surprised me, interested me, amazed me. Mm-hmm. But in the fact that he starts that conversation out by asking for her to meet a need of his. Yeah, I think obviously all those things that you're pulling out are so interesting. And I think even in the Nicodemus story and in the woman at the well story, kind of a sub plot, like playing in the background, you see the moral authority, like people are looking like Nicodemus is asking, the woman at the well is asking kind of who's our moral authority here. And I love that she's portraying like y'all pulled out the social, the moral, the gender, the racial barriers that she's up against. And I think you see Jesus just transcending those. Like he doesn't see those as barriers. She's crossing in through those so easily. Whereas her society, her peers, certainly the Jewish people are accusing her and uh, putting her lower on the totem pole. Like she is the lowest, she is the weak. And that's something you were talking about from the beginning, how she is the least. And I was, as I was studying actually for a different class, I came across this uh, text out of a Jude commentary I was reading. And it says, Satan's power over men rests on his ability to sustain accusations against us. And I was just thinking about how so often we're operating out of the accusations that we believe that Satan's putting on us, either through our culture or through our own uh, fallible conscience, or even through himself and how Jesus comes in and he doesn't accuse her. He does fairly judge her. He does say exactly who she is in a statement of judgment, but not an accusation he's giving to her. He's offering her good gifts. And that's another word that I feel like is jumping off this page is the water theme obviously is present here, but you just see gift as a verb. You see gift as a noun, like it's just coming up the end of John three, all the way through the beginning of chapter four, just gift is just repeated over and over and over again. And so you see Jesus offering himself as that gift. And you earlier asked, where do you get that kind of water is Mm -hmm. what the woman at the well is Mm -hmm. asking. And then it seems really random, like Jesus is saying, well, go get your husband. Mm -hmm. And I think what he's getting at is like, what, how are you trying to satisfy yourself? And Mm -hmm. how are you, what is your craving? What is your greatest craving? What is your greatest need? And you think it's this thing, like this man maybe that can meet your need in her instance. And he's saying, no, I am, I'm the one you should crave. I'm the one that can satisfy you. So as we look further in that text, let's think about how the Samaritan woman responded to Jesus and what do her actions and words teach us about our own actions and words. When I first read through um, through that portion of the passage and tried to observe um, how did she approach, I at least took away an initial distrust and caution and doubt before and prior to Jesus actually speaking all that he knew of her life. And so basically like a, you know, prior to being known, um, she was guarded. Uh, but then as soon as Jesus revealed himself to, to be the Messiah, but also that he fully knows her, fully loves her, that the guards came down quickly. Uh, just for me, like I, I think I relate in that I'm often, I approach begrudgingly initially. And it's like every time, every time I've forgotten to have that gospel amnesia, where I've forgotten you know, what is the freedom of fully being known. And it makes me question or 
or doubt when I come back in to his presence, whether it's to confess, whether it's to just seeking to draw near in a time of needing comfort through hurt. And then when Jesus, you know, reminds me, you know, what it is to be known, you know, it's, it's refreshing, guard comes down. And so I, I think that uh, that's where, you know, that's what I see um, as just initial initial caution, initial doubt and distrust, but then, you know, upon being known, um, just an openness and vulnerability and an acceptance of who Jesus is. And it was beautiful to me. What were you thinking, Mackenzie? Well, I, when I was studying and reading this passage, the what I learned about and observed about the Samaritan woman responding to Jesus was that she doesn't deny her sin or defend herself initially when Jesus approaches her and he says, you know, you've had five husbands or, you know, go call your husband and come back. You know, I think she doesn't deny it. And so whether, and obviously she didn't know that he was the Christ initially, but my first response when somebody calls out my sin, especially in marriage, is um, to be very defensive um, and to be like, well, well, this is why I'm acting this way and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And she doesn't try to defend herself necessarily, at least verbally. Um, and so I think that she kind of in some way accepts that she's broken. And I think that ultimately she engage, engages with Jesus and, you know, towards the end, she accepts him as her savior. And I think a lot of times I don't want to do that. I kind of want to run the other direction and not really engage. And I try to defend myself. And I just see that she doesn't really try to defend herself here. And so I think that that's a really interesting thing. And it teaches me to want to not be so defensive. Yeah, when y'all are saying that about how she stayed there as Jesus was, in a sense, probing into her life. And I mean, you do see some hedging, you know, you see some potentially sarcasm, maybe, maybe not, you know, or just genuinely saying, um, I'm sorry, like, where are you going to get this living water? It's deep and you don't have a bucket to draw with. And you can tell she's not sure what to make of Jesus and she's not sure what Jesus is making of her. And as you go along, it's almost like levels of shame are being uncovered. You know, at first she's like, you're a man talking to me or a Jewish man talking to me. That's not what's supposed to happen. So I, I'm already thinking, what is going on here? Do I feel so a sense of shame in your presence. Are you going to judge me? Are you going to interact with me as I expect you to? And he doesn't. And then you go to the next level where he continues to talk to her and he continues to pull more out and he continues to, he offers her something. What is going on with that? And as he just continues to go deeper and deeper until he gets to that place of go call your husband and kind of maybe what is one of her biggest elements of shame is just exposed. And then she turns to, hey, I see you're a prophet. You know, let's go, to, let's move over here to this side of things. And Jesus answers her questions. And yet he always brings it back to her need, who she is and what he has to offer. And so just the way that he did it, obviously, kind of like you were saying, Clay, communicated to her that I see you, I know you, and I have come for you. I am for you. I have something to give to you. And so, I don't know. I guess I just think, what do I do in my shame? Kind of like you're saying, when I come to the Lord and my shame is exposed, do I see that as a healing thing or do I hedge? Do I divert? Do I become cynical? Do I become self-protective? Not believing that Jesus does expose shame so that he can heal us in it. And um, somebody was talking to me about this today, just to say, man, when you know your love like that, it makes such a big difference. And I thought to myself, do I know I'm love like that? Do I? And, and what kind of difference does that make?
Well, as we, we moved on to thinking about what it, how it is that the Samaritan woman responded to Jesus, the next question is, how did this text itself help you think about Jesus differently? In particular, how did it help you see him as the Messiah? I think one of my favorite verses is verse 29. Um, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And it's just beautiful um, because kind of a lot of what you were saying, Amber, like he knows us and loves us and sees us and doesn't cast us out. Um, And so I think that that's just a really beautiful thing. And so I think it challenges me to believe like, does he really know me? Does he really love me? Even if he's seen all the things that I've done and all the things that I've struggled with, is he still the Christ for me? And I think the answer is yes. And so that's really beautiful. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I'm also challenged in that she she leaves her water jar behind. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's really beautiful too, that... um, in some ways, maybe that's her old way of life or the things that the shame that she was carrying because she came to the um, the well at the heat of the day. She's carrying this shame and she leaves it to go tell others. And I think that I'm challenged because she left immediately. You know, like, do I immediately want to go tell others that Jesus has exposed my shame, but he's given me life and abundance? No, you know, like I want to, not that it's wrong to sit in it and, you know, worship, but is my first thought to go and tell others, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Um, I don't think that that's my first response a lot. And so it challenges me. How can I do that at my job? You know, um, people that I interact with all the time or even coworkers too, who face brokenness of their own in their own lives or face brokenness of patients. You know, like how do I tell them that like there is hope? And um, I think that that's really challenging for me. So um my first response should be to tell others to come and see like she did. Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about telling others too, just the emphasis in this at the end of this passage is the fact that the Samaritans, her fellow Samaritans, they do come to see this one that she is so excited to tell them about. And initially they come because of her word, but after they come and see Jesus, they say, we no longer believe because of what you've told us. We've now heard for ourselves. And I love this because it doesn't really give an account of Jesus doing a miraculous sign there. I mean, if he did, it's not written, but they heard, you know, they heard the word and that it penetrated and that they believed and what they believed at the moment, they wouldn't have known everything that it meant for Jesus to go to the cross and to die and to be raised again and to the spirit to be sent and all of the implications of that. But they knew what Jesus had revealed at that time, that he was the savior. And then if you get of the world, how important that is to them, because it would have been thought that of the Jewish nation, right? The God's the God of the Jewish nation. He made a covenant and he did with the Jews, but it was the intent was always to be a blessing to the nations. And so I love the fact here that you see that Jesus is revealing himself as savior and in particular savior to the world. Um, that also struck uh, with me what you were saying about how it doesn't seem to give an account of signs, but that, uh, that Jesus you know, his word was enough. And I think about even the 12, um, so the disciples and other Jews who, you know, keep asking for these signs and these wonders. And then you have the Samaritans who at just his word. And even what struck me, um, is in verse 25, um, when she says, know that Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And that just challenged me. Questions came to mind of like, do I believe that Jesus really has the answers to all things. Mm. Um, do I 
do I want to accept that he actually does know me and does this bring me comfort? Uh, just being a, a stubborn male, like does vulnerability bring me joy or, or does it make me feel uncomfortable? You know, does it, is it does it line up with this um, cultural idea of masculinity to be fully known? And, and I think that's another barrier you know, that Jesus breaks. Like yeah. this, this isn't, this isn't a, uh, not here for cultural norms. All right. I love that y'all are all hinting around or even just saying explicitly that um, Jesus is a guy who's not here to fit into our expectation. I think that even um, this woman at the well, she knew about that passage in Deuteronomy that said there's a prophet coming and he's going to bring heaven on earth again. The way it was supposed to be, he's coming back. This guy is going to come and rescue us. The Savior is coming. She knew about that, but she did not have catechisms and systematic theology books. Like she knew so little. But when Jesus comes in and pours out his grace on her and breaks those norms and pours out his love on her, she receives that. And that is what I feel like our, I don't even feel like that is what I know our Christian experience is about. Like when we experience the grace and the love of Christ, that it changes us, it electrifies us, it energizes us. And that is what this woman, I love how you describe that, Mackenzie, just that she drops her burden. The very thing that she came to get that was obviously very valuable to her day's labor, she leaves it there because her life was changed and she runs back to town to tell everybody about it. And that is a beautiful thing. And this gospel change is a gift. And Jesus says, my grace is for everybody especially the weak. Like she didn't have that pride. Like she's not coming in with position or education or all the social status things, things that we think bring us value. Like she doesn't have the pride of life. She's coming in knowing that she's weak and broken. And she's, I think that even removes some of her pushing back. Like she receives that grace and that love so purely. And it is just such a beautiful depiction Um, So let's think about some of the implications of this text in our lives. What do you think, Clay? Start us off. For for me, and implications for you know me personally, um, it's just a reminder of how he pursued me um, and brought me to himself. You know, through through much darkness, through in the depths, and how he entered in, and you know, just reminder that he does know me and loves me, and that he didn't just come to know me later, but he knew me before the foundation of the world, that he knit me together, that he was involved um, before I was a thought. And then later in the passage, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, it just you know, makes me think uh, about how you know, this does kind of beg a response. And the response is you know, sharing you know, this good news. And um, not for my own glory, not to gain my own gain merit. It says, um, so the sower and reaper may rejoice together. So there's there's this rejoicing that rejoicing in just knowing um, more of who Jesus is and rejoicing in others knowing him because he's worthy of that. Um, he is worth the awkward conversations, the stepping into other people's you know depth and darkness. And you know when he does enter into that, he changes everything. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the biggest implications is that it kind of brings me you know, back around to the end of Matthew with Great Commission. What do we do you know, with the, the greatest news you know, that we've ever received? Yeah, I think I agree with, a lot with what, what Clayt was just saying. I think I really love in the end, like what you were saying, Amber, that she, the Samaritan woman, shares the news with her friends, the Samaritans, and 
um, they come and believe in Jesus, not just because of what she said, but because of their own encounter and just that God is still the one who saved, that it wasn't even this woman who, um, it wasn't even just her story, that it was still God who is the main character of the story. And I think a lot of times I put a lot of pressure on myself when I want to share the gospel of like, oh, I'm going to say it right or say it wrong. And it's going to be my story that changes them. And in some way, maybe wanting the glory for myself because I'm a prideful person, but just that there was this humility that God did use her testimony, but he was still the one who drew them to um, himself and that they even proclaim that like it wasn't even just you it wasn't just your story we have seen and heard and know that he is is who he says he is and so I think just realizing my role of in this in the gospel sharing story that I am yes used but it is really God who saves and I think I just need to be reminded of that because I can put a lot of pressure on myself and that I have to say it right. Um, but it's really, really God who does the work. And it is a privilege that we get to go share that, you know, that she, it is joyful for her to say, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did and, and to let him do the work and to let him do the rest of it because he brings all of those people who were not seen as important to himself. And so it's just really beautiful. That's such a, I love how you phrase that up. And when we tell the truth of what Christ has done for us, it's humbling for us because we're telling of our wickedness and our our darkness and our brokenness and how he rescued us and how he delivered us. He is the hero. And so it is exalting him and really... I mean, it's certainly it's humbling for us. So I love that, the way that you're thinking about that and just processing the way that we we tell of the good news. It's good. Yes, it's challenging to me because really when I was reading that and I came to the end that that was her response and how quickly she went. I thought, why did she do that? Is is how I I feel like would I? I mean, do I really want to go back to town? I don't know what her relationships were. If we're on the right track of thinking that she was a woman of ill repute to some degree, did she have this deep love for all of her people? Like, what motivated her? Are to they going to trust her? Are they going to trust yeah. her? So many questions. Um, I don't really want it. That's not my knee jerk reaction a lot of times. And so it did make me think, why is it not? And as y'all are talking, and that was such an immediate application for y'all, and I, it pushed on that part of me that hesitates to want to do what feels like cold call evangelism, you know, in that moment, like, hello, you know, it's easier for me with people who have got some background going on, but just out of the blue. And I thought, why, why is that? And is that because when I feel like I'm calling them to Jesus, I'm calling them to, um, all right, now here's what you got to do to be saved, you know, instead of what you're saying, Aaron, here is my weakness. And this is what was done for me. And this is how much it changed my life. And it just made me think this is a, a silly little story, but just a, a little example of what it's like for someone to step in and love you. And you just think, I really want to tell people about that is that we've got this puppy recently and she has an awful lot of work. My husband did not care about getting a puppy. Um, He does not really like animals. He would never choose to get a puppy, but he indulged me thinking, let's get a puppy. I've got three (laughs) teenage boys and one's going to college. So maybe I'm trying to make up for that. But I didn't think I wanted a puppy either, but we ended up with this cute little puppy. Well, she is a lot of work as any of you who've raised puppies know. And so I'm out one night, 11 o'clock, it's rainy, Saturday night, and I'm standing out there saying, potty, potty, please go potty, potty. You know, and I'm thinking, why did I ever do this? This is a terrible idea. This is awful. And so John, my husband, who had to get up at 4.30 the next morning, it's already 11 o'clock at night, just puts on his coat, 
comes outside and just stands with me. I mean, he can't make that dog go potty. He can't do anything else. And it just in that moment, I was like, I knew by him standing there that he loves me. And so I just am thinking that that woman encountering Jesus would have known by her encounter with him that he loves me, you know, isn't it is in a tangible way as I experienced that. And of course, the next day I went to all three of my little, my teenage boys, boys, listen, listen for what your dad did for me. You know, it was because simply because he wanted to show me he loves me. And you just think that's why Jesus, you know, had that whole encounter with her and asked her for a drink of water so that he could show her that he loved her. And that was so powerful to her that he, she wanted to, to pass that on. Yeah, it is. I mean, I feel like it's one of those things that we can never get over. And it's not just that initial testimony of Christ's goodness to us, but his ongoing goodness to us that we're constantly telling in a Christ exalting way of how he's continuing to deliver us, continuing to forgive us, and that we should never tire of that. I think another theme, just as we're kind of wrapping up, is at the end of that passage, you see worship also beginning to pop off the page and how we should be worshiping in spirit and truth. Like when she tries to throw him the curveball, like, Okay, so where should we exactly be worshiping when she's trying to skirt some questions? And in verse 23, I think obviously Jesus knew exactly what he had in mind. And when John's recording this, anytime he's talking about the hour is coming, he's obviously, we know he's looking to the cross, even though the Samaritan woman wouldn't have known that. Like Jesus is looking to the cross and say, the hour's coming when I will thirst, when I will know separation from the Father to give you living water in that. So you may worship me in this beautiful way that my presence will be with you, that my spirit Spirit will be with you. And I'm giving away, I'm laying down my life, I'm laying down my rights so that you may know the fullness of living water, what truly satisfies. So I think just as we're thinking about telling of our testimonies and telling of Christ's goodness to us, how it does just lead us into worship. I love that, Erin. Thank you for sharing. I'm Mackenzie and Clay. Thank you both for joining us today. Listeners, we hope you'll join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you take an early morning drive or maybe as you take your puppy for a walk or out to go potty. <laughs> April Coleman and Heather Pendleton will be joining us to talk about Jesus is our bread of life. We hope you listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again. A season of pure shining to cheer it after the rain.